Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. You know the type of suburbs that tend to wind around golf courses? The ones with big houses whose windows must break all the time from wayward golf balls? That's Rio Verde. It's a suburb in Scottsdale, Arizona built in 1973 to attract retirees. Our 27,000-square-foot clubhouse is the social center of the community. They've got pickleball, tennis courts. We host twilight golf events, dinner dances, concerts, and jazz events that bring in professional... But what they don't have right now is a reliable source of running water. The taps are dry in Rio Verde foothills. Since January 1st, People there have been skipping showers, eating off paper plates, and when it's yellow, letting it mellow. Residents getting creative. I'm happy I have a pool because every time it rains, at least I can cipher that. We use it mostly for showering, for, you know, washing clothes, the bathroom. Rio Verde's longtime water supplier turned off the tap because of the severe drought that has gripped Arizona and the rest of the West for the past two decades. A water crisis is unfolding in the nation's southwest as the mighty Colorado River begins to dry up as a result of overconsumption and climate change. Farmers have been forced to fallow fields. Reservoirs are disappearing. A major dam could stop producing power as early as this summer. And it's raising questions about who gets to use Arizona's diminishing water supply and for what. One company in particular has gotten a lot of flack. All new at 6.30 now, a dairy company based in a country known for its huge oil supplies is after something even more precious in Arizona, water. Almirai, one of the largest dairies in the world, recently bought 
15 square miles of farmland. ABC 15's Joe Bartels. Al Marai is a Saudi Arabian dairy company. In 2015, they bought some land in Arizona and began pumping out a massive amount of groundwater. All to grow feed for their cows back in Saudi Arabia. A local TV news reporter recently interviewed people who live near the farm. They got a lot of straws. They've been drilling since they showed up. And I started getting um, complaints from residents about their wells, you know, running dry. You know, it's completely unfair. It's, it's criminal. For townspeople who don't have enough water to flush the toilet, the company has become an easy scapegoat. A foreign invader featured in the local news slurping up the last gulps of Arizona's water. For a farming operation in another desert, half a world away. But the truth is way more complicated. I'm Nate Hedgie. This is Outside In. And today on the show, we're talking with Natalie Cook. She's a professor of geography and the author of the book Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. Turns out that these two desert regions have been intertwined for nearly 200 years. They shared the same goal, making the desert bloom at whatever the cost. And now, both of them are struggling to keep it that way. Stay tuned for a tale of dates, dairy cows, and who really is to blame for the West's water crisis. And is it pronounced high jolly or high jolly? Um, I just have been saying high jolly. Okay. But his his name was originally Filippo Teodoro or something, and then he changed his name after doing the Hodge. High jolly. <laughs> yeah. So that's Natalie Cook. She's the geography professor who's going to help me understand how Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula became so intertwined. It's a tale that starts with camels. And a guy named Hai Jolly. He was always sort of described in in a way as a kind of wily man, having curly, like dark curly hair, sharp dark eyes. It's the mid 1800s. Photographs have just been invented. The Civil War is still a few years away, and Hai Jolly has recently returned to his homeland of Turkey after a stint in the French army. He's feeling kind of antsy when... He happens to meet uh, this American military agent who's basically taking this ship around the Middle East looking for camels. And so he jumps aboard the boat with a bunch of camels and they are brought back to, uh, to the United States. They land in Indianola, Texas. And he gets tasked with uh, helping transport these camels and manage them, essentially wrangling them where the U.S. Army can't manage this themselves because they know nothing about camels. <laughs> Hai Jali was part of a U.S. Army campaign. The U.S. had just signed a treaty with Mexico, ending the Mexican-American War in 1848, giving half of Mexico's territory to the U.S., including present-day California, New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona. This land became U.S. soil on paper, but in reality, 
the U.S. Army had no easy way of taking control of it. In large part because, of course, there weren't roads uh, and the desert, the desert was really difficult to, to traverse. Enter Hijali's camels, these iconic beasts of burden that settlers would have been familiar with from biblical stories of the old world desert, come here to help conquer the new world desert. And they seemed like a surefire win. Camels can survive more than two weeks without water. They can carry thousands of pounds of gear. And importantly, they could just eat anything on the way, like the shrubs and anything along the side of the, of the trail. So the camels seemed to be a sort of miracle solution if they could manage it. If they could manage it. Maybe there is an alternate reality where cowboys are riding around on camels, you know, like Hollywood westerns with chase scenes on camelback. But in our reality, the so-called Camel Corps, and yes, that was really their name, got a lot of heat from folks in the army. They hated them, thought the animals were awkward-looking, hard to wrangle. There were even some stories about them getting accidentally pushed over some cliffs. But the big reason we don't have camels in the West anymore is because of the Civil War. Once it started, the government just lost interest, and the Camel Corps lost its funding. Most eventually sort of died off or were sold to a circus or yeah, a few other random projects. After the Civil War ended, the colonization of the West ramped up, albeit without camels. It was a violent military operation that displaced and murdered indigenous people. And the U.S. government then enticed white folks to replace them with the promises of cheap land they could farm. But this wasn't ideal farmland. It was the desert southwest. The colonizers, the, the East Coast settlers, they didn't, have a, they didn't have any firsthand experience working in a desert or doing desert agriculture. Um, so a lot of people started to think, okay, well, how, how did uh, the people in the Middle East, how did they approach uh, agriculture? The answer was dates. Dates were very much sought after and and a loved American fruit in the in, in the eighteen hundreds into the early nineteen hundreds. Dates were having a moment. They were especially popular around the holidays, and most of them were imported from the Middle East, where date palms have been cultivated for thousands of years. And there were even newspapers that sort of made this big spectacle around the date import. Uh, it was called the Big Date Race. Uh, which boat? Was it going to be the boat from Basra or the boat from Muscat that was going to arrive first uh, for the holidays? And it was something that, that people really saw as valuable and that you could make a lot of money from it. That's what the new farmers in Arizona were thinking. They started talking to the newly minted University of Arizona, which had this agricultural experiment station. It's kind of like a lab, and their first big project was growing date palms. And I'll save you the suspense. The secret to desert farming is pretty simple. It's irrigation. They built elaborate canals, pipelines, and pumping networks to draw water from far away or deep down under the desert, wherever they could find it. They eventually figured out, oh, we can produce dates all year round, <laughs> and so it it sort of uh, it, it sort of took off and, and became an important part of the domestic production. Ironically, once American farmers got good at date farming, the holiday spectacle around them just died away. Dates had lost their exotic allure, but at the same time, the region had gained a special status as a sort of proving ground for desert agriculture. 
and all that knowledge and technology that they had developed farming dates, the U.S. would soon export it to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So let's flash forward to the early 1940s. General Eisenhower has mentioned the devastating attacks of our aircraft as one of the major factors in the Tunisian victory. Here are planes of It's World War II. The Americans were waging a war against the Nazis in North Africa. They really wanted to build airfields in nearby Saudi Arabia. But first, they had to convince the king there to let them in. So they contacted one of his royal advisors, a thin-framed, mustachioed American named Carl Twitchell. Just so happens, he was from Arizona. His argument to the U.S. government was an easy way to do that would be to help them develop their farm. And then maybe the king will give us access to the airfields. The population of Saudi Arabia was growing, and the king was worried about food shortages, especially with the millions of people that also came there every year for the Hajj. So the king wanted more local farms. Problem was, the Arabian Peninsula is one of the largest, driest deserts in the world. It only gets four inches of rain a year. I mean, there's a whole region there known as the Empty Quarter, one of the biggest contiguous areas of sand on Earth. Finding enough water to grow crops there was very, very hard. What they essentially were doing before, they had these donkey-powered pulling mechanisms to pull the buckets of water out uh, rather than a, a machine, essentially, which is what the Americans could bring. So... To get into the king's good graces, the U.S. had Carl and a team of Arizona farmers help with their irrigation problem. The biggest thing that they promised was the technology to pump water. Even deserts have underground aquifers. The new technology helped create an American-style farm on royal land about 50 miles from the country's capital. They grew melons, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash. There was even a glowing story about it in a local paper back in the U.S., They said the Arizona farmers, quote, made the desert bloom. The Americans also invited the Saudi king to make a trip to Arizona. And when he was there, he visited some ranches and dairy farms. And he was super duper impressed. It was all he could talk about when he got back home. He'd be driving around the royal farm saying to the managers, I want my own dairy, like what I saw in Arizona, a quote-unquote grade A dairy. (laughs) Um, And there wasn't any history of commercial dairy production within the Arabian Peninsula at this time. One of the royal farm managers was actually an American from Texas, and so he imported a bunch of dairy cows from the Lone Star State. Of course, the cows needed something to eat, and that's where alfalfa comes in. Now, You might think of alfalfa as the sprouts you put in your salad at Whole Foods, but it's actually a member of the pea family. It grows about three feet high, and it has these purple flowers and leaves that look like clover. Alfalfa is superfood for cows. It's got a lot of protein and calories to fatten cattle up quickly, which means they can make more milk. And, turns out, Saudi Arabia was a great place to grow this crop. Because it does super well with sunshine, um, as long as you've got the water for it. And because of all that new Arizona technology, the Saudi farmers now had the water for all that alfalfa. Over the next few decades, dairy boomed in Saudi Arabia. The milk was turned into creme caramel and Laban, which is like a yogurt drink. Folks there loved it. At one point, Saudi Arabia was home to one of the largest dairy farms in the world. 29,000 dairy cows. 
The country was also growing other stuff, like barley and wheat. I mean, Saudi Arabia at one point in time was one of the largest wheat exporters in the world. In terms of physical geography and water resources, this does not make sense. It doesn't make sense because Saudi Arabia is still a desert. So even if they had a bunch of fancy Arizona straws slurping up water, the cup they were slurping from was running out. Farms collapsed. Reservoirs turned into sand pits. So in 2015, the Saudi government took a drastic step. It banned the domestic production of wheat and green forage, like alfalfa, for feeding livestock. That means they needed to grow it somewhere else. Which brings us back to present-day Arizona. You may have heard about the alfalfa farm in western Arizona, run by a Saudi Arabian company. Now the Arizona Republic is revealing that the Saudis got a sweetheart deal to rent that land and get the water. That's coming up after the break. But first, if you're digging the show, leave us a review on Apple. Heck, I mean, even if you hate it, leave us a review or, you know, send us an email. Outside in at NHPR.org. We love to hear from you. Please tell us about some stories that you want to hear more of. All right. We'll be right back. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. As an environmental reporter who lives in the West, I am obsessed with alfalfa. I think it's one of the hidden keys to understanding the region's water crisis. We often complain about how much water gets used on lawns or golf courses or even those fountains outside of Las Vegas casinos. But if you're going to play the blame game, at least one finger should be pointed at alfalfa farmers. That little pea, along with a few other choice crops, slurp up almost half of all the water in the southwest. Ranchers and farmers grow a ton of alfalfa to feed their cattle. Because remember, it's a superfood. Americans even export it overseas to countries like China to feed their cows. Here's the thing. 
it's been really easy to grow alfalfa in states like Arizona, not because there's enough water to grow it sustainably. There isn't. But because the water there is cheap and mostly unregulated for farmers. Here's Natalie Cook, the geography professor. She points to some laws that were passed in the 1980s. The general idea was that Groundwater needed to be managed in particular in the cities, but the rest of the state uh, was not designated as being subject to an AMA, an active management area. Uh, so the, the laxness is essentially in 80% of the state that does not have to comply with any groundwater uh, management policies. Agriculture has always been uh, an important political force within the state, and agricultural actors have really successfully lobbied to make sure that outside of the cities, they can do what they want with the land and the water. Politicians have been wary to to push back against that uh, very directly. So if I was a farmer, are you essentially saying that I could put my well, tap it in like a big straw, into the aquifer, no rules, it's a free-for-all, I can just take as much water as I want. Provided you are outside of an active management area, yes. <laughs> Which is most of the state. Which is most of the state. And this is a big reason why Almirai, the Saudi dairy company, showed up in Arizona. Remember, Saudi Arabia needed a new source of alfalfa because production had been banned back at home. But big businesses like Almirai, they don't just quit when a local supply disappears. They go shopping. And companies this size have the money to drill really deep wells that can cut into nearby water supplies. Other farmers and even, you know, just any person who just has a house in the area, they don't have the money to drill such deep wells. These things are very expensive. Um, so that that the theoretically, if you've got the capital to have that straw, then then you can do that. It reminds me of that movie, There Will Be Blood. I drink your milkshake. Except instead of oil, the beverage this time is plain old H2O. I drink it up! Don't bully me, Kate. Almirai moved into Arizona in 2015, but it's taken until this year for politicians to really do anything about it. This is my own reading of, of the interviews that I did with people in Arizona, that there was just a sense of political paralysis, that you couldn't really change anything, even if you knew something was, was not a good, um, a, a good deal or a good thing to have in the state, nobody was going to go out and do anything about it. So whereas they, the Saudis had seen protests, like mass protests from farmers uh, in, in Africa, they weren't going to experience that in, in Arizona. In the past, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been very frank about their approach to oil. The Saudi energy minister uh, in 2021 said that Saudi Arabia was never going to stop drilling oil, that it was going to drill to the last molecule. And Natalie says the same point of view applies to water. I feel like this is more or less the attitude about the, the Almirai farm in Arizona. And I don't think, though, that it, it's just Saudi. I think that it is actually Arizona's agricultural establishment writ large has a very similar attitude. Um, it's, it's as if they're not necessarily thinking about what's tomorrow. They just are concerned to get to the last molecule and whatever happens after that. Um, maybe that's somebody else's problem, but they can go somewhere else. They can just go somewhere else. 
The Saudis have no stake in the future of Arizona's water table or the people who rely on it. So it's up to the folks who live there to make sure their water costs what it's worth. But there are forces in the state that are focusing exclusively on the Saudi farm. Just recently, the Arizona Attorney General revoked two new drilling permits to Al Marai. Also, some of the Republican lawmakers in the state are now trying to pass uh, a ban on foreign land ownership and targeting the Saudis. That's great, but that doesn't change the, the way that these water laws are being uh, exploited by commercial farmers from other states, from within the U.S. As Natalie alluded there, Al Marai isn't the only one taking advantage of Arizona's lax groundwater rules. There's another company from the United Arab Emirates that's doing the same thing. Then there's the Mega Dairy from Minnesota, the multinational ag company based in North Carolina, all of them drinking up what's left of Arizona's water. Farmers are not paying very much to have these wasteful water practices. Um, and so if you then actually charge people a much higher rate than growing alfalfa and having uh, up to 10 or 12 cuts per year, that's going to be very expensive. Uh, so if if there's a way to increase the price and use the price mechanism to to change that, then, then perhaps alfalfa will just naturally leave um, because it's just unaffordable. Turning back to Almirai, um what do you think politicians and the media get wrong about what's happening uh, there in Arizona? I think the bigger challenge with this whole story is that it can feel sometimes like a scapegoat. The country just has this sort of cachet in, in the American imagination that other countries in the Arabian Peninsula don't necessarily have. So the Emirates has a farm next door to the Saudi farm, but we never hear about it. Right. Um, if if you really want to think about environmental sustainability and, and water resources in the future, you have to look at the bigger pattern of the laws that allow this. Um, so I think it's fine to focus on the Saudis <laughs> as long as it is a tool to open up the conversation about um, reforming Arizona's water laws, which are completely absurd. And of course, not just Arizona, but the entire Colorado River Basin and the U.S. Southwest. That was Natalie Cook. Her book is called Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. If you want to learn more about the mega drought, there are a couple of new, really good podcasts out from Colorado Public Radio and KUNC. They're called Parched and Thirst Gap. Check them out. This episode was produced by Felix Poon and me, Nate Hedgie. It was mixed by Felix Poon and edited by Taylor Quimby. Our team also includes Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and Zhang Yun Han. Rebecca Lavoie is Outside In's executive producer. Music for this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Yo, 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 yo.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.